Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we head to the Netherlands to find out why sorry seems to be the hardest word there. The Dutch rarely use the word, a word Canadians use all the time. What does that say about them? What does it say about us? A Canadian is about to make baseball history as the first to manage in the World Series when Rob Thompson leads the Philadelphia Phillies starting tomorrow night. We head back to southwestern Ontario to learn more about his long journey from bat boy to baseball's big time. We return to Atlantic Canada to find out what is happening more than a month after Hurricane Fiona left a path of destruction right across the region, how are badly hit communities coping with the cleanup and the huge task ahead of trying to rebuild. But first, voter turnout at municipal elections in Ontario, Manitoba and BC in the past few weeks has been dismal, often below 30%. Why is that? Considering who runs City Hall can have a huge impact on our lives. What can be done about it? Manitobans went to the poll in the municipal elections yesterday, capping off a busy few weeks across the country where voters in Ontario and BC did the same. There are new mayors in cities such as Vancouver, Surrey, Victoria, Ottawa, Hamilton, and Winnipeg, where Scott Gillingham beat out Glenn Murray, who was attempting a comeback after serving as the Winnipeg mayor from 1998 to 2004. The two-term councillor beat out 10 other candidates in total, replacing Brian Bowman, who did not seek re-election. Now, this isn't to take anything away from any of the victors, but we've seen this in municipalities uh, right across the country. You know who won just about every race in every one of them? Something that wasn't on the ballot. None of the above. That's because voter turnout was down almost across the board. In Winnipeg, it was 37%, at least preliminary, down from 42% last time around. And that was a good showing. Across BC, average turnout was 29.2%, down more than 7% from 2018. Just 36% in Vancouver, 37% in Victoria. In Toronto, it was about 29%, 22% in Mississauga. Ottawa looks impressive, but it was still just 44% there. So what is going on here? We've had years of campaigns encouraging people to go out and vote. Advanced voting has never been more popular or easier, really. Are we disengaged, disillusioned, or is it a sign of good things? Do we think that most everything is okay? So why bother? Are there too many candidates? Is there not enough local coverage because so much local news has disappeared over the years? Joining me with more on this now is Leah Levesque. She's an associate professor of political science at the University of Guelph. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, thanks for having me, Ben. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I, you know, I was looking at uh, the Manitoba municipal elections last night, really just to figure out what the voter turnout was going to be like, because it had been low just about everywhere else, and Manitobans followed the same trend. Uh, what do you think is going on? Uh, yeah, so, you know, there are a lot of explanations that feed into the conversation about why vo- voter turnout is so low. Certainly some of the uh, residents that you just featured um, from the streets of Toronto, you know, I think do echo some uh, sort of some details that we recognize as affecting people's voting behaviors. But, you know, the fact that they don't have time, the fact that there are other distractions. There are a lot of other explanations uh, that feed into um, the low voter turnout conversation Um, So, for instance, um, you know, there is at the municipal level often a lack of representativeness of candidates. uh, And by this, I mean that candidates, uh, you know, may not reflect 
the the um, racial and gender and cultural diversity of residents. And so people don't necessarily see their interests being reflected in their voting options. Um, we also uh, sometimes talk about the problem of uh, a lack of parties, which are important cues for voters who might not have time um, to learn about all of the details of individual candidates and who might rely uh, in provincial and federal elections um, on uh, on the party affiliation to help them uh, make decisions. Uh, I think there could also be some unique factors uh, right now that have to do, you know, with the, you know, the combination of the high rate of inflation, which is creating uh, really significant cost of living challenges for folks, combined with ongoing concerns about the pandemic and people's, uh, you know, safety and well-being. Um, and maybe the last thing I'll say uh, is that, you know, voting is uh, habitual behavior. And so one of the things that we really worry about is that when people don't become voters early on in their sort of voting uh, life, so once they reach um, voting age, then they are more likely to remain non-voters over the course of their lifetimes. And so, um, you know, I think this also, this is part of the problem, but also gives us some cues as to where we might look for some uh, solutions to reverse the trend. Yeah, I was noticing that in Guelph, it was 27.8%, which is pretty low. One of the things that I found, and this is just, just in Victoria, I mean, I went to vote. Uh, I've been trying to follow along, but because there is less and less local news, even in a place like Victoria, mm-hmm. it's hard to follow, even as a, if you want to inform yourself, it's kind of follow, hard to follow the bouncing ball a little bit now. And, and I know that that can be, you know, maybe media wasn't always a great favor when it came to these races for how they frame them and so on. But at least it allowed you, because of the way they're balanced, at least it allowed you to find out what everyone stood for. And I find nowadays that's kind of vanished in a lot of communities. Uh, Yeah. So I think that um, this problem of lack of access to um, information about candidates is definitely, um, it's definitely an issue and it's an issue in a couple of ways. It's an issue in the way that you describe. So if there's a lack of local coverage, um, you know, and I think lots of local media are working really hard to, you know, to do the best that they can. But nevertheless, if there's a lack of local coverage, then, uh, we, you know, people might not have access to the information that they need. The other reality is that, um, you know, access to online information of candidates via websites, et cetera, demands a particular level of, uh, you know, of online media savvy by candidates themselves, which may or may not be a realistic expectation. And it also demands that kind of um, savvy from potential voters. And so, you know, I admit also that um, as someone who is, you know, pretty invested in uh, local politics, if a candidate doesn't have a website, it makes it very, very difficult to try and understand um, you know, what they stand for, um, what their experiences are that they're bringing to the table, uh, why I might consider um, voting for them, which, you know, creates obvious barriers, both for people who don't have regular access to um, websites or who don't have the means to create them. 
Yeah. Did you go? Did you vote? I did. I did. I mean, you oh, know, yeah. municipal, election, municipal election. I'm sure you did. Municipal elections, that ballot is like, you know, I remember covering an Italian election once. It was like seven pages, right? The, the, the municipal election yeah. here, I mean, there were so many candidates between, you know, see a capital regional district, city hall, um, school board. I mean, it, there was just so many names. That might be part of the problem, too, is people are just overwhelmed when they do get their ballot, when they go. Yeah, I mean, I think that is uh, that is part of the problem. And, of course, there is some research that uh, suggests to us that when people expect that their preferred candidate is not going to perform well. Now, granted, this is, um, you know, this research looks at the federal level. And so I'm doing a little bit of transference here. Um, but if they don't expect up their preferred candidate to do well, they might not be. Um, motivated to go out and cast uh, cast a vote. So not only can the number of candidates be overwhelming, but also um, if the pool of candidates is so uh, diffuse um, that you you know that you don't see a lot of hope for the candidate that you uh, are supporting, then that could also be um, discouraging. And of course, um, you know it's worth mentioning that uh, we. We know that in countries that offer proportional representation voting systems, voter turnout is generally higher. And so even though there's not a lot of good evidence to necessarily suggest what happens when a system changes from what we currently have, which is first past the post, to proportional representation, it's reasonable to think that if we were in a voting system where your vote was more likely to count towards the candidate or candidates you preferred, then that, you know, might make a difference to voter turnout. What could some of the solutions be? Because it feels like voting has never been easier. I mean, at least here in Victoria, the advanced polls were open early. People could go whenever they wanted. Um, would technology make it more convenient? Would it, if we voted, could vote more at home online, would that help? I, I'm not sure. Yeah, so... I think that the, I think that we have to make continue to think about removing barriers to participation. So certainly there are some municipalities here in Ontario that do um, online voting that also can you know run into challenges if your information is entered incorrectly into the computer system. Then you run into uh, barriers when you try to vote. There's a number that you can call to get that um, problem alleviated. Um, but if you, uh, you know, but if you run into a problem and give up trying, well, then there's a lost vote. So, uh, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think there's an obvious, um, I don't think there's an obvious correlation between, for instance, online voting and increased voter rates, but, uh, at least not that I'm, um, aware of, but I do think that, uh, regardless, part of the answer is absolutely to think through what are the most likely um, barriers that people face to participation or what are any of the barriers that people face to participation and then how do we make sure that voting is as easy as possible, um, particularly um, because some folks who would be excluded from voting might particularly be folks who would also be marginalized in other ways in communities uh, and you know and I think it is, uh, it is um, you know, we are, we, we need to really emphasize um, making sure that, uh, that all uh, residents, even those who are often excluded, um, have access to voting. So 
that's definitely, um, you know, one piece that is necessary. Another fewer candidates? That hop- Maybe fewer candidates? Would that help? It might, uh, but it's hard to say how exactly you would, um, you know, how exactly you would implement uh, a requirement like that. Of course, you could create higher barriers to entry um, into uh, into the election process, but then that creates different kinds of uh, issues. So, you know, for instance, there are high financial barriers to entry at other levels of politics, and uh, there are also financial barriers at the local level. Um, you know, but we don't want to tie um, political representation. I don't think that we want to tie political representation um, to those kinds of uh, barriers to entry. Um, you know, back to an earlier comment that I made, some of that would be dealt with with um, proportional representation systems where you would be less worried about uh, potentially the number of candidates because you would know that your preferences would get sort of um, accumulated uh, towards um, towards making sure that one person elected, there are different kinds of systems, but, you know, the general idea is that the person who is elected would ultimately have accrued over 50% uh, of the vote, which is not um, necessarily the case right now. There are other things uh, that have to do with... Um, you know, civic literacy and building, um, uh, building better education pipelines um, and even discussions about things like lowering the voting age um, as a way of building voting habits uh, at a time when young people are still uh, most, for the most part, this is obviously not um, universally true, but for the most part, uh, when younger people are still engaged in some sort of, you know, educational institution where you might have sort of more of an audience to inspire voting early on, which then could feed to um, sort of this habitual uh, voting behavior um, there we go. as people we'll have to, get older. Well, we'll have to leave it at that, Leah. Thank you so much for your time tonight. It is a, a million-dollar question, of course. How do you get people interested in municipal politics? Because they matter. They do matter. Thanks so much for your time tonight. They matter a lot. Thank you very much, Ben. Have a nice night. Yeah, even the most famous Canadians say sorry a lot, don't they? (laughs) I'm sorry to say this. It's no secret that Canadians are often noted and mocked for our tendency to apologize. When I was in England, they made fun of it. I mean, everywhere you go as a Canadian, at some point, somewhere, in some kind of conversation, someone's going to say, either you say sorry at some point that, that amuses people because they're like, why are you saying sorry? Or at some point, someone brings it up. You know, that an A. Sorry, eh? That's kind of people around the world. That's kind of their perception of how Canadians speak to each other. Family guy, I'll show you enough of that. Um, But the fact that we apologize a lot is sort of, it's a quirk that I don't think we mind because there's nothing bad about it. It doesn't harm anyone to some extent, I don't think. Um, It's one of our, and we own it. It's our quirk. Although the Brits do say sorry quite a bit as well. And that's probably, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, probably one of the reasons. There are many theories as to why Canadians apologize so much or say sorry so much, I should say. We're not really apologizing for anything. We're just using a word uh, that's slipped its way into the Canadian vernacular. Um, You know, again, that innate British awkwardness, eh, maybe that's part of it. Uh, Really, it's sort of an innate humility, maybe, that we're proud of, that we're sort of polite that way. But people often like to point out that it sort of borders on from the sublime to the ridiculous, you know, that often if if two people bump into each other, one person is clearly at fault for it, right? That both of you will say sorry. 
you know that you that uh, that if someone almost you know if you're if you're trying to cross the tr- cross the street and or, and you bump into someone or you step on someone's toe, they'll often say sorry to you. Like the the idea that you've had this accident somehow, if you both just just agree that it was no one's fault and no one did it on purpose, you use the term sorry. It's also kind of polite, you know. It's a bit like extending. Uh, you know, a hand of goodwill to somebody because you feel you may have hurt them or inconvenienced them in some way. Um, and good manners and courtesy is not a bad thing. Peacekeeping too, a way to differentiate ourselves from our American neighbors. Don't forget, th- don't don't think they don't notice. Here's Canadian Jim Carrey showing us how it's done in Anchorman 2. Hey! There's not going to be any fight without Scott Riles and the incredibly polite Canadian news team. What about the French-speaking Quebec news? The real voice of Canada. Give it a rest, eh? Give me a break. They can't have news. Nothing happens in Canada. We're going to mop the floor with you. We're going to put the boots to you. Sorry. Sorry. We're going to gouge your eyes out and kick your head in. Sorry. Sorry. I like your ginger ale. (laughs) Sorry again. I like your ginger ale. I forgot about the ginger ale. So it came to my um, attention recently, the BBC did this video about uh, the fact that people in Holland and in the Netherlands don't say sorry much. And really, this was from a British perspective. And then I looked around and realized that even Dutch students who come to Canada to study also immediately notice that people say sorry all the time. And that back in the Netherlands, they don't. It's certainly not the way we use it. So why such a difference? And what does it tell us about why Canadians say sorry off so often? I thought I would try and figure this out. So joining me now with more on this is Saskia Marsa. She's an intercultural speaker and trainer based in Arnhem in the Netherlands. Thanks so much for your time tonight. It is. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Canadians are, are renowned. In fact, we're almost mocked for being so apologetic or using the word sorry all the time. I guess it's part of our somewhat part of our British heritage as well here. But mm-hmm. it turns out in um, in Holland, uh, sorry is not, not, is, not the, is not a word that's often used. Yeah, well, we actually use the word sorry only if we really mean it. So it's uh, like uh, in, the, well, in the British or Canadian communication style, it's part of the politeness. Yeah? It's a, a diplomatic way to, well, to send a, a more or less negative message or a disappointing message. And in the Netherlands, it's uh, much more yeah, f- focused on, well, you say sorry if you really mean it. And the underlying value uh, on this is that we um, say sorry out of honesty. So right. uh, the underlying values is to be honest and um, to be clear. So if you say uh, sorry all the time, then people would consider that as... Um, uh, how do you say? A bit, a bit, a bit fake. Yeah, yeah, a bit fake. So yeah. they might get suspicious. Oh, why say sorry all the time? I mean, what do you what do you want to say? So just say it, right? And and if you if you've really done something wrong, then you can say sorry, but not not constantly as a part of of a, a vague that will be uh, considered as as a vague or uh, or unclear. Right. I mean, because, I mean, many, many cultures around many languages around the world are sort of couched in a lot of nuance, right? There's a lot of subtext in many, many cultures, not, not in the Netherlands so much. It's pretty straightforward. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. In the the Netherlands, we have this quite direct communication style and the underlying values are, like I said, it's based on honesty and being open. And uh, with being direct, I, 
I actually mean that we our uh, information is quite clear. So we say what we mean and we mean what we say. And in other cultures, it can be perceived as rude or even arrogant or too direct. Or, And I've interviewed many, many people from abroad that lived in the Netherlands for a while. And they all say in the beginning, uh, I was quite shocked. But then after a while, usually when you when you're abroad for a couple of months, then you start to get used to some things. And also, yeah, people told me that well, after a while or after a half a year, yeah, you get used to to the more direct communication style. Um, so the most important thing is to to understand the underlying values, and for for also for Dutch people when they go abroad or when they work uh, internationally, uh, they also have to to get used to the more indirect style of the most other cultures. Uh, but as soon as you understand that it's based on tact or diplomacy, well, we have to learn then to listen better and to find out what the message between the lines is, really. That, that, and that we shouldn't translate literally the words. Uh, so it's more like the tone or, or the, the, the context. And that's right. a quite, this is quite a challenge for Dutch people that work abroad or internationally yeah i suppose they're wonder they're wondering when someone's going to get to the point right that's the mm -hmm. uh, yes yeah <laughs> yeah um in canada canada we often use the word sorry as kind of a um it's a bit like a greeting in some strange way like if you're oh, if, you, really? if, if the two of you arrive at a doorway at the same time your first reflection your first instinct will be to say oh sorry and then let the person oh, okay. in okay so yeah. it's a it's a bit of a it's it's a bit of a term that we use uh, as sort of a way of acknowledging the other person and saying, "Okay, I see you. I will now step back and let you come through." Or okay. you know, yeah, we we tend to um, or if you or if you bump into someone, obviously, it, it's it's used as a term of politeness. Yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, I, what happens in 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 those situations in Holland? Do you just do you just sort of grunt at each other, or what happens? No, well, well, in that case, situation, we also might say, "Oops," like something. Oh, uh, oops. Yeah. Uh, we could also say, like, "Oh, oops, oops sorry." Yeah. Or, but right. then you know, it's like a practical. It's it's more meant practically, like okay, well, uh, we just bump into each other, and and then uh, we both know that uh, no one of us does it um, um, on purpose. Yeah, on, on purpose, purpose right, right? Yeah. What's interesting in Canada is that it's often assumed, and this is why the other people make fun of Canadians for saying sorry all the time, is that even if you're not at fault. You'll say sorry for something, okay, right? So, really? Yeah, yeah. So if someone bumps into you, you'll say you'll both say sorry, or one of you may say sorry. So it's sort yeah. of an interesting dynamic. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's not. Uh, yeah, and you know, even the Americans like to mock yeah. it. Mm -hmm. um, but you did a lot of work. I mean, you've obviously had a lot of exposure with uh, with British people living in in Holland as well, and they tend to use the use sorry sort of in a similar way, right? Um, it's it's done sort of as a means of diplomacy. How do they find it? I mean, how is that relationship when they come to uh, to the Netherlands to live? Do they find it difficult with the with the directness? The British people? Yes. Yeah, yeah, the same. Yeah, the same in the beginning there. They might be shocked and and um, uh, well, well, actually, um, what I what I found out in the interviews with with uh, people from thirty different countries, I found out that they all um, experience that the same way. And if you look at uh, like the the skills when it comes to communication, then the Net the Netherlands has a high score on being direct. So that means that most other cultures have this have have the same experience. 
So whether it's American or, or or British or French, they all perceive that as a, as in the beginning as as rude or even shocking. Uh, but then after a while, when you under like I said, when you understand the underlying values, when you understand it's about honesty and openness, it's also a part of the trading mentality. Like okay, it's sh- short communication lines. So let's say, well, just say it, and then we can move on. Yeah? Right. Or just say it on an honest way, then we can make a deal. Um, and I should say, especially this communication style is a bit more in the west and the north, uh, above the rivers. While and more in the north south of the Netherlands, uh, people are all uh, less direct. Right, so closer so, to the Belgian border, that 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 area. Yeah, is that, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Really, that, isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah. That, that you get yeah, more direct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's also um, uh, also part of the being direct. Is also part of uh, a consensus culture, and in that consensus culture, it's also people people uh, are uh, invited to participate within discussions. Yeah, you see yeah. that in, in like Dutch talk shows, for example, you see that everyone, even even if you don't know anything about the subject, then you still are invited to give your opinion. And that's what children already learn at a very young age. You give your share your opinion. And that's also a part of the consensus culture. And that's uh, be, yeah to, to solve problems together. Right. And I guess to make yeah. that effective, you can't you can't spend too much time, as we say in English, beating around the bush. Right. You need yeah. to get to the yeah. point <laughs> if, if if you want to. Uh, how does it manifest itself when, when you say when people come to Holland for the first time, they might find people a bit uh, abrupt? What's a good example of something like that? Is it it's sort of is it making uh, exp- expressing your opinion in a way that people elsewhere don't express as freely? Or is it more about uh, t- saying something about the person or what they've just said that's more direct? Yeah, um, what I often heard was uh, saying things uh, about, for example, the clothes. I once uh, interviewed somebody, also a British, British man, and he said, yeah, somebody said, once said, well, your socks are doesn't suit with your trousers, for example. Right. <laughs> and that's an uh, honest way of giving an opinion, even if it, if if he didn't ask for the opinion, they, they might come up with, uh, with thoughts and ideas just to be helpful like well these right. socks don't suit with your trousers maybe other socks will i can help i can show you <laughs> right so in a more practical way it's more meant to be practical but also i heard a very funny story about a, a american lady she moved to the netherlands and in the beginning she was quite shocked she was in a uh, shop one of the first days she was in the shop and uh, uh the um, how do you say the the, the, the lady who sells the product, she was uh, saying to her client, yeah, well, I don't think that dress really suits you. So (laughs) the American lady, she was completely in shock because how can she say something like that to a client? I mean, the client is... Hey, you should right. treat the client like a like a king or a queen. Right. And but she was just meant to be honest. Well, this dress doesn't suit you. I I would like to advise you another dress. But then after a couple of months or even a year, she was getting used to that communication style. And then her American friends came over to visit her, and she said, "Well, I was living in a very ugly apartment." And and she said, "I knew it was ugly." And then my American friends came and they say, "Oh, well, how lovely, how great." apartment this is great and i thought come on i know this is an ugly apartment don't be faded yeah yeah <laughs> and then she you realize that suddenly 
she was looking at the American communication style through Dutch eyes, which is very interesting, of course, because it helps you to to create cultural awareness, right? And yeah, uh, yeah, I suppose you have your... to watch. It. Yeah, you have to. Next time you meet, I meet a, a Dutch tourist here in Vancouver, in British Columbia. I don't want to go up to say them, say to them, "Hey, nice to meet you." Those aren't very nice shoes. You don't want to do that, right? It has to be more. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you have to be invited in to give an opinion, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's right. So back back to where we started with the word sorry. So there's a whole much broader cultural uh, context around not saying sorry. It's because if you're to say what you mean and you're not apolog- you're not really sorry, then why say it? Yeah, it could be perceived as as uh, not honest or uh, yeah, could could uh, create uh, suspicion. Uh, people could get suspicious or well i doubt it if if you if you really mean it i mean that's that's more important that the most important thing is you if you really mean it yeah sorry seems to be the hardest word yeah <laughs> uh saskia Barsa, thank you so much for for shedding some light on a very different way of uh of approaching that uh very well-worn canadian term sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're welcome it's nice to be in your show you know, we try to be, I try to be somewhat neutral on this show because lots of people have interesting opinions and you don't want to, you don't want to side call for come down on one side too hard because then you, you lose out on all kinds of interesting stuff, but we're going to make an exception in this half hour because I'll tell you, I'm cheering for the Philadelphia Phillies. I, I'm sorry for Houston Astros fans out there. If you're listening from Houston, apologies again. There I am saying sorry, like a good Canadian. We've been talking about that tonight. Uh, why do we do that? 877-399-9898 is our text line. We've been asking that question tonight. We're going to talk about that the next hour. But I'm unapologetic about my uh, cheering for the Philadelphia Phillies in this World Series. Uh, and it's a big deal for me because the Phillies broke my little 10-year-old heart back when I was an Expos fan, you know, back in the early 80s. The Phillies were our nemesis. Mike Schmidt, I still have nightmares about Mike Schmidt and Steve Carlton and Tug McGraw that early 80s World Series championship team, you know, they were always the Canadian, the, uh, the Expos nemesis. And yeah, I, I didn't like them at all. And it took me a long time to ever cheer for them again. But this year I am. And uh, one of the reasons is this, when they take the field tomorrow, Canadian sports history is going to be made. For the first time, a Canadian manager will be at the helm of one of the teams involved in the fall classic. In fact, Rob Thompson is the first Canadian to manage a major league team full-time since 1934, here he is after the Phillies wrapped up the National League pennant with a win over San Diego on Sunday. I, I feel very fortunate. I mean, that so many good things have happened to me personally and to this ball club. Uh, I just feel so fortunate every day. I told the local media the other day, I said, you know, so many great things have happened to me that, that when, every time I cross the street, I make sure I don't get hit by a bus because I'm waiting for something, to, the roof to cave in or something. But but it's been great. And it's um, you just got to keep it going. Rob Thompson there. I mean, just it's been such an amazing story for him because his journey to the World Series has been an unconventional one. He started on the Diamonds of Southwestern Ontario. He traveled to the 1984 Summer Olympics to represent Canada in L.A. at those games when baseball was a demonstration sport. He played college ball in Kentucky and did very well. He had a minor league career that was brief um, and not particularly successful by baseball standards. But he then did a bit of managing. And then he ended up in the New York Yankees organization, and he spent 27 years working for the New York Yankees. He did everything for the New York Yankees from 1990 all the way through to 2017 uh, before joining the Phillies as a bench coach in 2018. He's a member 
of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, he is for all that he's done, but he wasn't really a known figure to those who didn't pay very close attention. Few know Thompson's journey as well as my next guest. Rick Corner played baseball against Thompson's older brother uh, back in Kurna, which is where they're from in southwestern Ontario, not far from Sarnia. Um, he also knew Rob when Rob was a bat boy there. So no, you can imagine just how excited folks are in that neck of the woods now that uh, that Rob is on his way to a World Series. And it could have happened to a nicer guy, they all say. And joining me for now from from London, Ontario, uh, is uh, Rick Corner. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Yeah, I appreciate the call, Ben. It'll be nice chatting with you. Yeah, this must be quite the event. I mean, I, it's kind of snuck up a little bit. I don't, I don't know how much Canadians were paying attention to the fact that the Phillies had a Canadian manager and this was going to be a piece of history when uh, the World Series kicks off tomorrow. Uh, but tell me about when you first met Robbie. He, 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 it was long ago in his baseball career, in his baseball journey. Yeah, so I want to say uh, back in the 60s, 70s type of thing, his family was a baseball they were baseball icons in Crown, Ontario. Dad was the manager of most of the, the travel teams. Brothers played. Tom and Rick played. Robbie was always the bat boy growing up. <laughs> I I ended up meeting and marrying a girl from Crown. And coincidentally, my father-in-law was the umpire for a lot of these games. So, uh, you know, I got to watch them as, as I grew up. I played a lot of baseball in Sarnia, and we played Corona teams, and... Uh, Got to know the family through my in-laws, actually. It's amazing. I mean, to think because it's not a big place, right? Corona, Ontario? About 2,000 people back then. They're probably up around between 5 and 10 now, I want to say. But, uh, yeah, just a very small community. Uh, class C, you know, ABC in the sports thing. They'd be a Class C team. Right. But a lot of talent. Yeah, I mean, I didn't realize that, that Rob had come from such baseball nobility, really, in, in the area. But did you follow his career after he sort of moved on? I know he went to London to play, where you are now, and then uh, then went to university in the States and so on. Did you keep in touch and sort of follow his progress as he moved along? De- definitely followed him. Uh, I mean, I had my own life as well, but uh, and quite, quite into it myself. Uh, yeah, followed through family connections and so on. Uh, Rob actually didn't play in London. He uh, played in Corona. And then once he got to the real travel level per se, played in Sarnia, took a scholarship over at Port Huron Junior College in Michigan, just across the border, uh, went there for a year and then transferred to Kansas University. Yeah, he had a great he had a great college career as well. I mean, one thing I've read a lot about is his time playing at the Summer Olympics in 1984. That must have been a big deal. Oh, that was amazing. That was the inaugural Olympics. Now, there's a few kids from the area that actually played on that team, which uh, I know a couple of them. And uh, uh, they a couple of them went on to play professional baseball as well. They scouted Robbie when he was playing at University of Kansas or Kansas State, I guess it is, and uh, formed a team to play in the 1984 inaugural Olympics. Yeah, so I guess I guess even as far as Kerner was concerned, that was sort of the beginning of his, well, another step in his journey to becoming kind of the hometown baseball hero. Yeah, another step. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, he uh, went to Kansas, got drafted by Detroit Tigers. Which is good, right? Not too far down the road. That's right. Just down the road, lots of scouts in the area and so on. Went and played for uh, 
a couple of years for minor league Tigers and then decided, you know what, I'm not really good enough for this. I wonder if I could do some coaching. And uh, he talked to Chris Shambliss, which is a, a famous baseball him. name. Yeah, sure. London Tigers. He came down and coached with London Tigers for a year or two. Right. Okay. That's the London connection. Right. Of course. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yes. Of course. That's the what I was getting at. So that was kind of the beginning of what would be a very long journey through um, off off the field baseball, which which was which is exceptional because he's had an an, un, an uncommon journey to a manager's position. It's been a long one. Oh, by all means. Uh, um, one thing about Rob is, you know, he 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 gets ability, he understands it, and he said, "I'm not good enough." I could do better helping people out. So he just actually just slid right into naturally into the coaching. Tell me a bit about Rob. I mean, what you've known of him over the years and, and how you've kept in touch and so on. Has he? How did that evolve from player to coach, then into front office and so on? So a, an interesting thing happened, uh, just a little side story. Uh, the Tigers sent him overseas to a, a conference to try and help out with baseball. I can't remember where it was. At the same time, the Yankees sent guys over as well. Well, the Yankee uh, head scout for our area was Rob's coach in college at Port Huron Junior College. Wow. He said, do you, do you think you might want to come and work for the Yankees someday? So uh, he thought, yeah, why not? You know, and uh, yeah, no when kidding. he got home, he talked to Shambliss about it. He says, you know what? If you can go work for the Yankees, uh, I support you. So uh, hired on with the Yankees. He was with them for 28 years in, in various capacities. Run the whole minor league system until he moved inside and uh, did an office job for a bit and then decided to go back on the field. Did some uh, third base coaching and so on. Was asked if he wanted to be a bench coach. At the time, it was with uh, Joe Girardi. Girardi uh, ended up getting fired and uh, uh, Rob went through the interview process, and that didn't work out well for him. Uh, very upset with that. He always wanted to be a professional manager. But uh, Phillies were actually looking for somebody of his talent and asked him if he wanted to come work for them. Went over there, and he was bench coach for, Joe, or for uh, uh, Gabe Kapler, actually. Right. Gabe got fired. They brought in Girardi. <laughs> Girardi <laughs> and Rob were best friends, like all the way through the Yankees, and then uh, now with the with the Phillies, they decided to uh, let Girardi go. You know the, that's the way things work in this game. The manager is the one that always gets blamed, but you know what? That's uh, that's the way it is, I guess. Indeed, yeah. I mean, just over the years, how has how has Rob changed over all that time? I mean, he went from being you know, a minor league ball player, college ball player to being really, a, you know, having cut his teeth with probably the most storied franchise, one of the most storied franchises in sport in New York. Uh, did he always stay the same kind of guy all the way through? Rob has been a absolute humble guy from his beginnings. His dad was one that let's always look ahead. Let's not look back. Let's look ahead. What's going to happen on the next pitch? What's going to... He's always had a positive attitude, always had the players behind him. It's just a, a way he's got about as a person that uh, he tries to build character in the players, uh, gives them his support. What do you need today? How do you feel today? You know, getting the uh, players up to a level where 
they have confidence in Rob. Rob has confidence in them, and uh, they understand each other. So you've and not been that's surprised. how he's always been. You haven't been surprised by his success, then, even though not that many people knew much about him, really, I mean, outside of the baseball world. No, exactly. And I guess it's kind of good, kind of upsetting, but kind of good that uh, people are, if you want to say, jumping on the bandwagon now. But uh, you know what? It, it, it's support, and uh, that's what it's all about. Rob spent 28 years with the Yankees, got five World Series rings, various capacities with the Yankees, and who's Rob Thompson type of thing. Yeah. But until he got the big role, finally he's getting noticed. He, he is in the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. We should say that uh, that those within the business of baseball in this country and elsewhere have long recognized his talents. Oh, by all means. Uh, 2019, he was inducted. Uh, the, the same day I went down to visit him, I had a a thought that I might try and put a display together at the local Moore Township Museum, just south of Crona, where he grew up. So I took a little kid's jersey, had Rob sign it for me, and we donated it to the to the museum. They thought it was wonderful, didn't really have a spot for it at the time. And uh, uh, I thought, you know what, Let, let's see if we can expand on this a little bit. This was pre-COVID, and over the past couple of years, I've been working on this display sat down with Rob, uh, got all his jerseys from various seasons and pictures and so on. So I set up that display down there, and it has just been uh, viewed, enjoyed, visited by many people now. Rick, when you set up this display, I mean, clearly the timing has been fantastic. There's a lot of attention paid on it. It must be a really exciting time for the community, who I imagine are suddenly all Phillies fans, at least for the next little while. (laughs) How true is that? Yeah, a matter of fact, they had a little party down at one of the local restaurants yesterday from uh, another radio network from the area was down there interviewing people. Uh, Where the restaurant was was where the Thompson house was. They tore it down, built this restaurant. It's kind of ironic. When I decided to try and get this display going, I, you know, talked to Rob about and 100% got his support. I said, you know, this is great for you. And he says, you know what, it's, it's not for me. I mean, that, that's good, you know, blah, blah, blah. Rob's such a humble man. I said to myself, if, if I can motivate one little kid by seeing this display, that guess what, a bat boy to the major league management position. Like, uh, if, if this can inspire somebody to attain a level that Rob has achieved, well, I've got my goal. Yeah, it's an amazing story to start from a bat boy in a town of 2000 and and then go all the way through the Yankees, you know, the World Series rings you've mentioned already, but now to be manager of the Phillies, you know, it's going to be uh so the excitement must be must be pretty high there going into going into tomorrow as when when Rob talks about that upbringing, he must have a a real he must be proud of where he came from as well though. Absolutely. He he is a a hometown boy through and through. When he comes home in the in the off season, uh, he lives just near near Stratford, Ontario, which is only about an hour and a half, couple hours from uh, Corona. Uh, loves the area, still visits people back home in Corona, spends lots of time back in the community. So, um, any predictions? <laughs> any predictions on this one? I mean, the Astros have a good team, you know, but it feels like you know everyone's what? cheering for the Phillies this time around. Yeah, exactly. Astros, Astros are a great team, you know, and that, that goes without saying. It's going to be a tough series both ways. Uh, 
you know what? This is almost a season about things are made to happen. You know, it's uh, working out so well. We're just hoping for the best. And in Rob's eyes, if we win, awesome. If we don't win, well, that's awesome as well. We got to this level. So many players on the team haven't been at that level yet. It would be great. Yeah, and just for, in Rob's case, I guess Canadians in general should should be cheering him on because in many ways, you know, often his story would be a hockey story, right? But it's not. It's a baseball story, and there's something pretty fascinating about about his rise through all the different levels of the game to reach what is now really the pinnacle, right, to manage the World Series. Oh, how true is that? Uh, Rob had a little a statement the other day in one of the articles I was reading about uh, there's actually – so many Canadians on scholarships in the States now, it's unreal. It's almost like uh, there's more Canadians on baseball scholarships now than there is on hockey scholarships. So that's kind of a an about face. Yeah, and a reminder that baseball is part of our uh, part of our identity too, and Rob's certainly at the forefront of that. Rick, thank you so much. We'll be thinking of you when watching the World Series unfold, and uh, I think I'll be cheering on the Phillies this year. Although the the Phillies broke my heart as a young boy, as an Expos fan, so I've always struggled to cheer for the Phillies since the Mike <laughs> Schmidt days. But I'm going to make an exception this year. <laughs> well, that's that sounds good, Ben. Um, I was with the Expos in '76. They had '77 spring training with them. Just a little side note. <laughs> right. Oh, were you really? Yeah. D- d- playing. Well, I was in spring training with the Expos in '77. And the whole month of March, I was with the Denver Bears uh, AAA team, and uh, uh, got released and sent home. And uh, I guess I wasn't good enough. And then found out years later that it was a working visa thing. They only had seven work visas for non-americans which was kind of uh how ironic you know, is that <laughs> how ironic yeah is that? no kidding yeah well there you go so so a bit of exposed history there as well uh rick thank you so much for sharing your story and for sharing uh rob thompson's as well much appreciated yeah thanks a lot ben it's i uh, really enjoyed talking to you <laughs> Well, it's been more than a month now since Hurricane Fiona tore through Atlantic Canada. We talked about it a lot on this show. They're still cleaning up and assessing the damage more than 30 days later. Early indications already show that payouts will be the highest of any extreme weather event to hit that part of this country. It's already estimated that insurers will pay out $660 million. Forget the non-insured because there's a lot of those too. But $660 million, that makes Fiona one of the 10 most expensive disasters for the industry in Canadian history. And part of the reason for that is just how much of the area was hit, with damage really to all four Atlantic provinces, plus Les Îles de la Madeleine, the Magdalene Islands in Quebec. One of the hard-hit areas was Nova Scotia's Cape Breton. And we spoke to Regional Municipality Mayor Amanda McDougall as the storm was bearing down on her region a month ago. It's happening. The rain is coming down. Uh, the wind is picking up. Even in the quietness of a house, you you can hear it. And I know uh, you're, if you were out and about, which we really, really strongly encourage people not to, you would see the lights on in all the houses because I think we're all just sitting vigil, making sure the ho- our homes are okay, our neighbours are okay, and uh, waiting, waiting for what's to come in the middle of the night. Well, what came in the middle of the night was destructive. Uh, The kinds of winds that people there had never remembered seeing before. It was a storm of epic proportions in Cape Breton, ripping up trees, damaging homes and so forth. And again, a month later, they're still not finished the cleanup, let alone the rebuild. Uh, Down trees are a big problem, but so is red tape, of course, and a lack of labor to do all the work that needs to be done. So we decided to go back to Cape Breton today and 
find Amanda McDougall again, uh, the mayor of the Cape Breton Regional Municipality, to find out exactly what's going on there now. Welcome back. Thanks for your time. Nice to speak with you again. Well, last we spoke, I mean, we it, first it was Fiona was bearing down and then it had done its damage. Um, a month later, how are things looking? How much worse was it than we thought it would be or was it was it not as bad? Oh, no, it was it was worse. We are still dealing with the impact of Fiona 30 plus days in. None of us have seen in my time anyhow. And, and what I'm hearing from our older generations in the community um, and their time as well, a storm of this magnitude and, and negative impact, really. You know, we're used to wind, but this was exceptional. Yeah. So where are we now? I'm seeing that there's still people um, who haven't been able to return home, many from the same sort of same apartment complex, I think. But there are still people out. There was one gentleman who was still without power. There's still sort of recovery going on. Most certainly. And, you know, it's um, as much as I don't like saying it, it's true. We're going to be in recovery for a long time. Um, we're fortunate as a municipality in terms of our infrastructure. We we fared out pretty well. But when it comes to those things like actually getting many of those damn trees that are still around removed, repairing sidewalks and what have you, but that doesn't compare to the the damage to people's homes. Um, there are people who are unable to do the um, recovery and renovation work and repair work to their homes because there are still trees on their homes. And just to kind of paint a picture for, for the listening audience, we're not talking about a Christmas tree here. We're talking about 100 plus year old trees, big poplar trees in some instances that are just, it's so precarious and dangerous to remove them. You have to be very skilled because if you cut a tree in the wrong way, you can cause more damage to the house. I think we just got approval today for an area in Sydney, the Ashby area. Um, the province is going to foot the bill that 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 we give them to have a whole line of huge trees removed down that way. And oh. it's, it's a slow process because I'm in Glace Bay. I was out in Sydney Mines last night. There's still a remarkable amount of debris. Uh, and speaking of money, uh, how is that coming along? We knew it would be expensive. I was just talking to uh, Andrew, I was talking to someone in Newfoundland, of course, with the storm surges there, insurance didn't cover a lot of it. And that's a real problem for them. Sure. How's it looking for Cape Breton in terms of just where the money is going to come from for rebuilding, how insurance is working out for your for your municipality? Yeah, I think, you know, we're still very much figuring that out. Um, I know one person reached out to me early days in Fiona and said there were 10 plus trees hindering access to her property on her driveway. So to have those trees removed, it was $33,000. Wow. A really remarkable amount of money. And then I heard from her yesterday saying that the disaster financial assistance didn't cover that. So her worry is that's half of her salary for a year. So there are situations like that. There are situations I'm understanding through insurance that it's not the tree that they cover. It's the impact of the tree due to wind. And so removing a tree from a house, that will be covered. Removing the tree from your property, that is not. And so it, it's really been challenging. And as a municipality, we've been advocating on behalf of residents, trying to expedite clarity and um, action really of disaster financial assistance money. So we did hear the federal government come out with $300 million dollars. We don't really know the details yet about how that's going to reach people. There is money coming from the province by way of, I think, $100 for lost food, $250 for help in, in tree removal. 
different little pots of money like that. But, you know, it's going to take a long time for us to really understand what the dollar amount is. Yeah. Do you feel like you're getting at least the clarity and the help that you need so far? No, I don't. Um, These these things, these rollouts and announcements of money and funding is great. And the money that's been going through the Red Cross is, is it's just absolutely phenomenal that's getting into the hands of people, keeping them in hotels when they need to. But we we need people on the ground. And that's what we've been really asking for since day one, right? Is to make sure that we had resources by way of people and skilled people who could help with those trees. It's been really tough. And we're waiting and advocating and slowly getting there. But yeah. yeah. In meantime, the seasons are changing, right? Winter's on the way. So I'm sure people are worried about that, not being able to go home or at least still have it, having damage to their homes as winter sets in. And then, as we well know, in this country, everything kind of slows down when it comes to to that kind of work. Right. So the other piece of this is that there are all, all, only so many hands that are able to do the work that is needed, repair work, renovation work, uh, tree removal work, any of that. And hearing from folks saying, I, I think I'm like 10th on the list for this one contractor. So that's also really tough. Like we only have so many resources here on this island and it may be 20 plus degrees here today, but that's going to change very quickly. The rain, the wind, the winter, it, I've never, ever felt this anxiety about the seasonal change. Yeah, I can imagine. And just when it comes to longer term, I mean, I know a lot of people across Fiona's path have started to look at how to build back better. I know that's a term we've used a lot. Maybe it's lost a bit of its meaning, but uh, it feels like this is an opportunity. Have you sensed uh, in your area that people are looking at how to build back a little bit differently, just given what they've gone through? Well, it's interesting. Um, Absolutely. And we saw that happen in the floods as well, right? People do things differently, but I'm hearing a lot from people saying, I thought I was prepared for the storm. I clearly was not. And so precautionary things like purchasing larger generators, upgrading electrical panels. I know in my house, it just, it's coincidental that we're working on our kitchen a bit, but putting, we're putting in a propane stove, things like that. Like how do we change our every day to be more prepared for what, what we know is going to be more frequent and severe weather events from a municipal standpoint, that is also very important in terms of long-term planning and infrastructure. You know, usually we're, we're just always thinking about when is the next rainstorm. This wind just changed everything. So we need to do things like proactively be working with the telecommunications companies. We cannot be without phone again. That period of time where we could not make phone calls, text messages, the lack of communication was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. How long was that again? That was a while, wasn't it? It, it, it was different for different people. I know one of my council members just got his phone back on the 25th of October. That's a month. That's a month. That's a month. That's Amanda a month. McDougal, thank you so much for the update. Uh, good luck with the continued rebuild and, and the recovery. And uh, we'll talk to you again to catch up. It's important, I think, to make sure that we check in every once in a while to see how things are going. So often these stories sort of drift off the pages and people stop watching, but we shouldn't. Well, thank you. No, and, and, and it's been a pleasure to, to talk to you throughout this whole process. You know, I have family in Newfoundland. I've spent quite a bit of time in Atlantic Canada over the years. My mom lived in PEI for a little bit. I spent a summer there. It's a wonderful part of the world. I did quite a bit of work there when I was a reporter. Um, So watching Fiona tear such a path of destruction through that whole area was, was heartbreaking, really. And I feel like we just haven't talked about it much since it happened. So I was really curious to go back and find out, check back in with some of the people we spoke to back when Fiona was bearing down on the region to find out what's happened now. 
uh, more than a month later. Uh, Newfoundland, Newfoundland and Labrador, I mean, most of it didn't get too badly hit, but Porto Basque, southwestern Newfoundland, that was that was different. One person, of course, died. Dozens of homes were destroyed in Porto Basque itself when those storm surges swamped the community of 4,000. A month later, many homes remain inaccessible due to ongoing safety issues. Dozens of people still need to be housed. They haven't been able to go home yet. And many who lost their homes are wondering if, how, and where to rebuild their view of a sea, of an ocean that many had lived, you know, people there had been living in these areas for generations. And now their relationship with the sea has changed a little bit, not not forever and maybe not for everyone, but it's viewed differently. The, the threat that the sea now poses uh, to some areas of that community has changed fundamentally. And with more on that, I'm joined by Andrew Parsons. He's the MHA for Burgio Lapoil, and he's the Minister of Industry, Energy, and Technology for the government of Newfoundland and Labrador. His writing, of course, includes Porto Basque. Andrew, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be back, Ben. Well, last we spoke, it was right in the midst of it, uh, or just in the aftermath, really. Do we have a better idea of, of just where Porto Basque stands today and how much work still needs to be done? You know what? We, we do. Uh, it's been, a, I guess, a long time coming. It feels like so long, just over a month. Uh, so I, I guess the reality is that I think we do have an early indication of some of the totality uh, now, would I be able to give you an answer on how long it will take to rebuild? Uh, sadly, I wouldn't. This is absolutely going to take, I don't think just months. I think this is going to absolutely go into the next couple of years. Yeah, it really has, unfortunately, just reshaped the entire community, I gather. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I was just down in that neighborhood on Saturday with a really good friend of mine, someone who never lost uh, their house, but their entire backyard is gone and it's right sort of near the I, I, I guess you could call it the ground zero I don't know if that's appropriate or not but like mm-hmm. it, when you look at the aerial shots of that area it is is dramatic and we were just talking about how really it was the the end of a neighborhood because in I mean the majority of damage was in this the channel part of channel port bass the oldest settled part I mean I would say it's close to 80 homes that uh, if they weren't wiped out, uh, they were uh, demolished. And when you look at a community of 4,000, that is a significant number. That is. I mean, I'd seen at one point, the estimate was about 100. It looks like it would be more than that that were damaged, damaged or destroyed, not just destroyed. But that's an incredible amount of homes for a small community. Yeah, no, so that's right now, when you look at the entirety, and, and a lot of the tension has been on Fort Abbasque due to, it, it really, uh, I guess, received the brunt of the storm. Uh, there's about 95 homes that have been, we'll call it for lack of a better word, written off. Um, they've been inspected multiple times as it relates to environmental safety or structural safety. Uh, in some cases, they may not have been hurt structurally but between the water and maybe oil sewer going in the house is just not inhabitable there's already we know a second tranche of now that they've done i guess a new flood risk zone mapping uh the reality is that that home i mentioned there i was there the other day that home if there's another storm that is right there in that spot so we're probably in the range of looking at another 40 to 50 homes that even though they may be structurally sound right now they're probably not safe to stay in with the damage that was caused 
where is everyone? Uh, I, I, last we spoke, I, I you'd, you'd said, I think I'd heard that many people had managed to sort of resettle with family and so on, but there's only so long that can, can go on. For. Absolutely. Uh, so right now, I think there are roughly 60 people that are still staying in hotels. Uh, what's been going on? Since, and, and again, many people still reside uh, with family uh, or staying, you know, in other accommodations, we'll say that they achieved one of the biggest pieces of work that has gone on is that there's been a housing committee struck by various government departments who were doing a combination of figuring out, you know, accommodation possibilities, temporary accommodations, uh, you know, might be apartments, might be houses, might be that are for sale. It might be, you know, is a hotel a long-term possibility? And then you have a list of the displaced and their family compositions. You know, everybody's different. You might have a senior versus a young working family with multiple kids to people with mobility issues. They're trying to to match those possibilities up with the family. That's probably the biggest piece of work that's ongoing and probably the most difficult because in some cases, you know, when you've been staying by yourself in a hotel room for 30 days, that has an effect on many people's uh, mental health. It's, it's already a depressing time. That That's certainly contributed. Yeah, it sounds okay when you first start. It's a long time to be stuck in a hotel room. Uh, when we last spoke, there was, there was an idea that there were people who just weren't going to go back to their old homes, couldn't go back, but also didn't want to go back, that in some ways this had reshaped the way Porto Basque and, and surrounding neighbor uh, communities were actually going to be settled in the future. Are you still hearing that? Absolutely. And that, that fear has not left since then. This has absolutely impacted, not just physically, but the psyche of the community has changed. I saw one long-term time resident in one of the areas that was hit. Even if his house was found to be sound, he wasn't going back. He saw enough. This is somebody who's been living in the community for 70 years. I mean, when you see these people that are feeling that fear that they may not have felt before, that's, that's huge. So right now you've got uh, a situation of, we're going to say 95 houses that are either have been demolished already naturally about to be demolished uh, or not safe to go back in. They're not going to be rebuilt there. These areas will not be rebuilt. Uh, There's no way. I think that even if insurance were to cover it, they would never allow for a rebuild there. I don't know if we, uh, as we move forward into the, I guess the reimbursement stage of things, I don't think there's a desire by the town or citizens to go back. There's always the isolated case, but overall, this has had a permanent effect on people's desire to live in these areas right along the ocean. In terms of the money, um, does Newfoundland Labrador have what it needs? Does Porto Basque have what it needs? How are you sorting that out? That is it's still an ongoing situation. You know, I, I wasn't personally affected with my home, but it's been hard. It's been hard on everybody uh, mentally. It's just, just it's hard to be around that level of tragedy in some cases and not have an effect but if there's been a silver lining and we look for them the amount of love and support just good gestures that has come in has been just out of this world the support has come in from all across this province across this country so for that i i I say thank you to people the just the, the sheer number of goods and supplies coming in through red cross and through lions clubs and through salvation armies uh, the money that's been raised, I think the Red Cross is already up over the 22 million mark. Uh, the province put 30 million uh, up uh, for this. So right now, 
most people have received some kind of immediate support. Right now, I think as of yesterday, there was about 1.7 million that's been passed out to just over 350 households. So the biggest issue that we have not figured out yet, but we are working on is the situation of someone who's had their home wiped out, may have had insurance, may not have had insurance. Generally speaking, insurance is not covering this. There's no storm surge coverage. That's right. We're trying to figure out how do we take care of these individuals uh, and trying to treat every case individually because it's hard to put just a, a static figure there. And again, the rebuild will likely start in the spring. Well, Andrew Parsons, thank you so much for the update. Uh, of course, our thoughts are still with the folks of Porto Basque and surrounding communities these days after that uh, incredible tragedy that they suffered through just a month ago now. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. And uh, thanks for having me on to talk about this again. 